A quick word of thanks to listeners Carolyn and Eddie for using the Buy Me a Coffee link in the show's notes and helping support the podcast. You two are the best. Green rivers, shamrocks, green beer, parades. The week around March 17th of every year can get a little bonkers. But how did this all come about? Crack open a pint of Guinness while we discuss St. Patrick's Day in Chicago. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. I hate to break it to you, but Chicago is not one of the largest Irish cities in America. Not surprisingly, Boston has us beat, as does Philadelphia. But can you believe places like Louisville, Kentucky, Nashville, Tennessee, and Buffalo, New York have a higher percentage of Irish living among their ranks? Now, before any listeners in neighborhoods like Bridgeport or Mount Greenwood get upset, yes, Chicago does have areas with very high percentages of Irish residents. And although over the years the citywide Irish population numbers have dwindled, that does not keep Chicago from proudly waving its Irish flags every March for St. Patrick's Day. Right now, I am actually wearing a satin Southside Fightin' Irish jacket from the 1970s. I'm not, but how cool would that be? Some background on St. Patrick's Day before we make the story Chicago-centric. Considered a patron saint of Ireland, St. Patrick was actually born in a town in Roman Britain in the late 300s AD. Patrick was not even his given birth name. He actually started using the Latin Patricius later in life. After some pretty bananas teen years, when he was captured by Irish pirates, Patrick claimed to have a vision in which he was told to bring Christianity to the Irish, who at the time were predominantly pagan and druid. The Irish were not digging what Patrick had to preach, so he left, setting up camp on some small islands off the coast. It was here he eventually gained followers and was able to go back to the mainland to spread his gospel. It is said he baptized up to 100,000 people. His fingers must have been super wrinkly all the time. Uh, he ordained priests, he urged women to become nuns, and assisted in the formation of more than 300 churches. All of a sudden, doing a weekly podcast seems downright lazy. As cool as the whole Patrick banished the snakes from Ireland story is, that is folklore. Uh, there weren't really any snakes on the island at the time. One interesting thing I read was that Patrick may have been the one to popularize the shamrock. You know, that three-leafed plant that makes its way into every sign and t-shirt in March. He used it to explain the concept of the Holy Trinity to those interested in Christianity. Patrick was never officially sainted by the Catholic Church, but is still highly regarded for his accomplishments in Ireland. St. Patrick's Day started in 1631 as a religious celebration simply referred to as Feast Day to commemorate the life of St. Patrick and his efforts to bring Christianity to Ireland. It is celebrated not on his birthday, but on the day of his death, which historians believe was March 17th, 461 A.D. 
It was in the early 18th century that Irish immigrants brought the tradition of St. Patrick's Day to the colonies in America. As more and more Irish came across the Atlantic, the popularity of the day grew, eventually resulting in the first ever St. Patrick's Day parade held in where else? Boston in 1737. New York had their first St. Patrick's Day parade in 1762. In case you're wondering why all the green on St. Patrick's Day, sure, Ireland is known as the Emerald Isle, but it actually has a deeper history that can be traced back to 1798 and the Irish Rebellion, when Irish soldiers wore green as they fought off the British, who wore their trademark red. Until then, the color associated with St. Patrick and Feast Day was actually blue. There was even a song soldiers sang during the war in 1798 titled, The Wearing of the Green. Fun fact, in 1836, the Illinois and Michigan Canal opened, which linked Lake Michigan and the Illinois and Mississippi Rivers. Much of the work was done by Irish laborers. It wasn't until Ireland experienced five potato crop failures beginning in 1845, losing nearly one million of its people to disease and poverty and 1.5 million more to emigration, that the once meager Irish population in Chicago began to spike. By 1860, Chicago was the fourth largest Irish city in America. I should mention, for those of you who might not know, that the influx of Irish into Chicago was not welcomed with open arms. Signs in windows at businesses looking to hire workers often read, Help wanted, no Irish need apply. I found hundreds of classified ads in newspapers in and around Chicago, starting in 1861 with the same wording. A few actually read, Catholic Irish need not apply, as the Protestant Catholics at the time were held in higher regard. One editorial in the Chicago Evening Post newspaper in 1868 described a typical Irishman as such. He has hair on his teeth. He never knew an hour in civilized society. He never stepped on anything more solid than a dirt floor in all his life until he stood on the deck of an emigrant ship. He is a born savage, as brutal a ruffian as an untamed Indian of the North American tribes. Of course he can't read. He can't write. All books to him are sealed. He only believes in the priest, and the priest is only little less a barbarian than he. Uh, This article, by the way, went on to say, Scratch a convict or a pauper, chances are you tickle the skin of an Irish Catholic. The same piece included a line calling the Catholic religion an, quote, abomination against common sense. So, yeah, not so much goodwill toward the Irish. The foreign-born Irish population in Chicago peaked at 73,912 in 1900. Immigration continued until the Immigration Act of 1924 limited the number of Irish men, women and children into the U.S. each year to just 18,000. That's for the whole country. Additional, more restrictive quotas and the Great Depression further curtailed Irish immigration. 
According to the Encyclopedia of Chicago, the last great wave of Irish migration to the United States was during the 1980s and included as many as 36,000 undocumented immigrants, many university-trained men and women, who settled permanently in Chicago and Boston because recent legislation had made it more difficult for them to obtain work permits and to adjust their status in the United States without incurring heavy penalties, they ended up taking jobs as nannies, bartenders, waitresses, and construction workers. Surprisingly, although Irish Catholics were so abused in Chicago in the later half of the 1800s, the city welcomed its first Irish Catholic mayor in the 1890s, with John Patrick Hopkins, who served from 1893 to 1895, back when mayoral terms were only for two years. According to the book Irish American Heritage Center, of Chicago's 45 mayors in the first 100 years, three had been Irish. Over the next half century, four of the five mayors who held office would be of Irish descent, including Richard M. Daly and his father, Richard J. Daly. Chicago has seen 12 mayors with Irish heritage. Uh, I gotta say, it still boggles my mind that between April of 1955 and May of 2011, the Irish Daly family, Father Richard J. and son Richard M., served as mayors for 43 of those 56 years. All right, now that you've had a crash course in Irish history and that of the Irish here in Chicago, let's get to St. Patrick's Day. In a piece in the March 16th, 1980 Chicago Tribune called The Greening of Chicago, reporter Jack McGuire wrote, The first St. Patrick's Day parade in downtown Chicago was held on March 17th, 1843. It was a modest affair representing the Irish of Chicago, who then numbered about 775. The marchers trooped down Clark Street with Smiling John Davlin as Grand Marshal and Captain Patrick Kelly leading an Irish military unit known as the Montgomery Guards. At Madison Street, they turned east to Michigan Avenue. There they entered St. Mary's Catholic Church for Mass and a sermon by the Reverend Maurice D. St. Palte. Later, there was a rally in the saloon building at the corner of Clark and Lake. So, ongoing strife between the established Irish Protestants of Chicago and the newly arrived Irish Catholic immigrants was intensified due to the actions of organizations such as the American Protective Association, an anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant group that, during the 1890s, boasted a membership of more than 2 million Founded by Henry F. Bowers in Clinton, Iowa in 1887, it was a not-so-secret society that played upon the fears of rural Americans suffering through a depression and the role of immigrants in populated cities. Of course, all this gave one of Chicago's earlier St. Patrick's Day parades in 1894 a special meaning. Because of the country's severe depression, some Irish organizations argued that their funds would be better spent on helping the poor than on a parade. Others said that it might bring further animosity from their enemies. The delegates voted overwhelmingly to have that parade that year. In 1897, organizers decided to forego the parade. 
According to an article in the March 16, 1897 Chicago Tribune, the parade had always been an expensive event and the Irish societies had, quote, exhausted their treasuries in benevolent work during the winter, end quote. They would instead observe the day in smaller groups around the city. Between 1900 and the mid-1950s, the big St. Patrick's Day street parades in Chicago were not always a sure thing for a number of reasons, war, finances, etc. One notable parade was in 1910, as it was attended by the 27th president, William Taft. As a token of appreciation, the Irish Fellowship Club presented Taft with an Irish blackthorn, a big stick sent by Edward Lehiff, one of the six founders of the Chicago Irish Fellowship Club, who had moved back to Monkstown, County Cork. The article went on to say the stick was, quote, cut from a historic tree in the rebel city of Cork that has furnished skull-cracking blackthorns for generations of pugnacious Munster men. End quote. Ah, yes, I don't want to leave you hanging on the American Protective Association thing, you know, the not-so-secret anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic group. Honestly, I wasn't familiar with it at all before researching this, but yikes. Following William McKinley's election as president in 1896 and the return of agricultural prosperity in the Midwest and the Depression of that time ending, membership in that group dwindled. By 1900, the American Protective Association no longer held any significant political sway, and by 1911, it had disappeared entirely. In 1955, when talk of reactivating the Loop Parade started, local Irish had already been holding smaller parades on the west side on Madison Street and south side along Ashland Avenue. Newly elected Mayor Richard Daly, the son of an Irish immigrant mother, pushed hard to combine everything into one big downtown parade. The West Side Parade went along with this idea pretty quickly, but the south side organizers held firm. Another issue was pushback from the retailers along State Street who felt the crowds would block access to their stores and cut into their sales for the day. A group of Irish civic leaders, politicians, and clergy was soon formed to lead the parade committee. Mayor Daly would serve as honorary chairman, and the Grand Marshal was none other than Rear Admiral Daniel J. Gallery, a name some of you may recognize as the man who led the capture of the U-505 German submarine during World War II. Uh, by the way, episode 213 of this podcast covered that event. Check it out. The committee still needed a solid reason to hold the event on State Street, something to help justify it. Along came Father Thomas P. Byrne, pastor of Old St. Patrick's Church, who was also the parade chaplain. Old St. Patrick's Church was getting ready to celebrate its 100th anniversary. That's it, the mayor was quoted as saying. As part of the anniversary celebration, a St. Patrick's Day parade will be held on State Street. The 1956 return of the St. Patrick's Day Parade to the Loop was not without a slight hiccup. The parade route had a four-inch snowfall overnight, but Daly had snowplows out first thing, creating a clear path for the 10 a.m. start. 
The following year's parade in 1957 also saw some upheaval when the city's director of special events, Colonel Jack Mr. Parade Riley, cool nickname, wrote a letter using Daly's City Hall letterhead to the commander of the Irish Regiment of Canada, inviting, quote, the pipe band and a composite unit of your battalion, probably of company strength, end quote, to march in that year's Chicago Parade. Riley neglected to tell his boss, and when Mayor Daly heard about the invitation, he was none too pleased and confronted Riley. How could a troop of British subjects be allowed to march in an Irish parade? The mayor was quoted as saying before revoking the invitation, the Canadians did not march. Uh, In case you're wondering, it was in 1961 the Southside Irish Parade finally agreed to give up theirs and join the downtown one. As a fan of bragging about Chicago first, I would love to claim that Chicago originated the idea of dyeing our river green to celebrate St. Patrick's Day, but we did not. In 1961, one year before it was attempted here, Savannah, Georgia, celebrated St. Patrick's Day by dyeing their river green. They also released green smoke from their factory smokestacks into the sky. The Atlanta Constitution reported 20 small boats moved through the Savannah River in Georgia, releasing orange-colored food dye into the mud-red waters as a motorboat crisscrossed among the spray boats to help distribute the dye. The river quickly became bright green for about half a mile downstream. Their efforts only produced color that lasted about 30 minutes before it began to look streaked a few minutes after that. Their river was back to its normal mud-red color. Here in Chicago, 1962 was the year of the first river dying for St. Patrick's Day. Sources say Richard J. Daly originally wanted to dye Lake Michigan green. Not sure if he meant the whole lake or just the area offshore. But the then business manager of the Chicago Plumbers Union, Stephen M. Bailey, also a childhood friend of Daly's, suggested they use the Chicago River. You see, in 1962, the city began enforcing water pollution controls. One day, a plumber wearing white overalls splashed with just the right shade of green came into Bailey's office. The plumber, according to sources, was part of a crew pouring dye into the city's waste system to track the flow of illegal sewage dumping. Then, the plumber explained, we check at the river's edge to see where the water is turning green. That first year, 100 pounds of a concoction was dumped into the water. The river stayed green for a week. Take that, Savannah, and you're barely a half-hour greening. At Richard J. Daly's side at the 1962 St. Patrick's Day Parade was the Jewish Lord Mayor of Dublin, Robert Briscoe. Briscoe later retired and was succeeded by his son, Ben, who served for 37 more years, not unlike the Daly's. Stephen M. Bailey, acting as general chairman of the 1962 event, proclaimed, quote, It's the greatest parade we've ever had. Chicago has never seen anything like this before. End quote. In 1966, environmentalists persuaded the city to stop using the oil-based formula they had been using. As it turned out, it was harming the water. They switched to a primarily vegetable-based dye. 
After a series of changes, organizers were able to use the current 40-pound formula that lasts between four and five hours. Since the beginning of the greening of the river, it has been exclusively handled by two families, the Rowans and the Butlers. The recipe for the dye is a secret, and as many know, it is orange when it hits the water, and after being churned up, it turns that glorious shade of green. In 1976, the theme of the parade was the Bicentennial and the Irish. According to legend, a daily subordinate suggested that the traditional green stripe painted along the State Street parade route should instead be painted red, white, and blue. The lackey was quickly shown the door, never to be seen at City Hall again. In 1979, the now-famous Southside Irish Parade began with a few local families marching through West Morgan Park, and it has grown from there. Pre-2020, it was said to be one of the largest St. Patrick's Day celebrations outside of Dublin. Normally, it kicks off every year on the Sunday before St. Patrick's Day and typically evolves into an all-day party for the surrounding neighborhoods. As for all the drinking, well... While St. Patrick's Day was recognized as a religious holiday, as a feast day for centuries, it wasn't recognized by the British government as a national bank holiday in Ireland until 1903. In Ireland, it wasn't until the 1970s that the holiday became an occasion for drinking, as bars were closed for the holiday. Here in the States, drinking became part of the celebration of St. Patrick's Day as early as the 18th century. Part of the reason for that, originally Feast Day saw the lifting of Lent restrictions for the day, giving Christians a day off from Lent as they made their way to Easter. Overdoing the eating and drinking was not uncommon. As for the insanity that St. Patrick's Day celebrations in Chicago often resemble now, well, you can blame beer maker Budweiser for that. In the 1980s, a huge marketing push from the macro brew maker convinced those celebrating that drinking beer and St. Patrick's Day went hand in hand, especially with that oh-so-enticing green beer. Ugh. Of course, crowd size has varied over the years, but recently, when the parade and river dying are not hampered by pandemics, crowds often reach 400,000 excited attendees. For you film fans, the 1993 St. Patrick's Day Parade was host to not just one, but two film crews. Chicago-born director Andrew Davis shot scenes for The Fugitive, in which Harrison Ford's Dr. Richard Kimball eludes Tommy Lee Jones' Deputy Marshal Sam Gerard by weaving in and out of the procession. It is also the film that gave us this amazing line. Let me ask you a question. die this river green today. Why can't they die in blue the other 364 days of the year? On that same 21 degree day with wind chills of negative six, director Michael Apted shot scenes for his film Blink, starring Aidan Quinn and Madeline Stowe at the parade. Both films had approval of the Chicago Film Office and reportedly there were very few overlaps. 
At a 1961 press conference, Mayor Daley, wearing a green tie, green cufflinks, and the Daily Grin, wished reporters a happy St. Patrick's Day. Daley brought out a bunch of shamrocks that he claimed were fresh from Ireland and invited the reporters to smell them. One skeptical reporter of German descent said, quote, Heck, they smell just like grass, end quote. Daly responded, I smell the beauty and elegance of the saints and spiritual leaders of Ireland. I hope you enjoyed today's episode about St. Patrick's Day in Chicago. Do you have any questions about anything covered today? Anything to add or have an idea about a future episode? Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. For more pictures and info related to the story, follow Chicago History Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a five-star rating or even better, a written review, especially if you listen on Apple Podcasts, as it will help the podcast grow and reach new fans. Your review may be featured on a future episode or on social media. The Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, John A. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. We'll be back next week with another chapter in Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Just go easy on that green beer. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe. <laughs>